What is pure Christianity? It's the title of my sermon this morning, What is Pure Christianity? That's a, a question a couple asked me last week. What is pure Christianity? And I answered, God's Word. A Christianity regulated by God's Word the most is more pure. And while that's a great answer, afterwards I thought when I got home, maybe I should have said Jesus Christ. The church most focused on Christ is more pure. The liturgy, the prayers, the songs, the sermon, the sacraments must focus on Christ. Then your life is secure. Your life secure in Christ. And that's the life and death that Samuel had, the great reforming prophet. And at his death, we read chapter 25, now Samuel died and all of Israel assembled and mourned for him and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Such an important reforming prophet, but a short, concise eulogy. Samuel died. The end. Such an important man, the end of an era, and he only receives a few words of attention. And that's because it is the duty of the man of God to preach the word in season, out of season, die and be forgotten because the, mis the ministry is only about one man. And the Bible is history, and there are a lot of men in the Bible. The Bible moves from the beginning of history in Genesis to the end of history and revelation and in the middle of all that in the middle of all that's lots of history the history of men it moved from adam to abraham moses to david old testament to new testament and there's so much history so much history in god's word it's it's easy to get lost in god's word do you ever feel that way as you're studying through the old testament perhaps to get lost, what's going on? Or how about singing the Psalms? You begin attending a church that sings the Psalms, and then you begin to ask yourselves, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on in these Psalms? Why is God so vengeful? Who can stand the test of the Lord? Who's upright enough to behold his face? We sang Psalm, or we sing Psalm 24. Psalm 24 asks the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And then it answers rightly, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The righteous man receives blessing from the Lord. The man without sin is blessed. The Lord rewards the sacrifice of righteousness with the glory of heaven, but then the psalmist says, none are righteous. What's going on? How do we get up that mountain? How do we sing the psalms? How do we wade through all this history, creation, laws, righteousness, wisdom, failure, sin, evil, and glory forevermore? How do we wade through the deepness of God's word without getting in over our head and feeling like we're drowned? Above it all, beyond the history, 
is the Godhead. And the purpose of creation is found in the triune God, God the Father, by the power of God the Holy Spirit, is glorifying God the Son in the church. That's the purpose of creation. And this vertical reality is primary. History is explained by it and not the other way around. Christ is the yes and amen of our reading of Scripture. He is the alpha architect, the omega finisher of God's Word. So in the beginning to the very end, He is before, He is behind every reading of Scripture. Jesus is the first and last word of God's Word. He has clean hands. He has a pure heart. So God the Father bestowed on Him the name that is above every other name. So as we read the Bible... And as we read the Bible, we need this upper register. We need this heavenly reality to guide and lift us up beyond Adam, Moses, Samuel, David, Abigail. And then we have the right vision of Scripture. And then we can read all that history and have Christ. And then the church is more pure and we are secure forevermore. So this morning, I want to dig into the history of 1 Samuel 25 through the lens of the vertical. And passing on Samuel's eulogy, we read verse 1, Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Again, he's on the flea. He's in his wilderness, wanderings, fleeing Saul. And with more words than Samuel's eulogy, we are introduced to a new character. Verse 2, And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and a thousand goats. It's very interesting and very peculiar for the Old Testament. Usually when it introduces a new person, it first reveals their name. But here, the first revelation of this character, the first or the introduction to this man is his wealth, his prosperity. It's all about his wealth, kind of like a TBN televangelist. Very rich man. And why are we introduced to a man by his possessions? We are introduced to a man by his possessions because his life wasn't ver worth very much. It says, verse 3, now the name of the man was Nabal. And if we know our Hebrew, which a lot of us know, Nabal means fool. He was fool. He was a rich fool. Rich but fool. <laughs> And then it does something else very peculiar. It mentions his wife. I mean, usually in the Old Testament, in this patriarchal society, you don't mention the man's wife. Very peculiar, especially to mention her in the same breath as her husband. And the name of his wife was Abigail. And then we see why she's mentioned. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. We're introduced to his wife because he married, he married up, right? That's what all men want. We are like, amen, that's good. You want to marry up. He married up. But we see there is a contrast between the wife and the man. She's the exact opposite. And this parenthetical, this introduction is setting the scene. And it's a tale as long as time. 
The battle of the sexes. No, it's not the battle of the sexes. With a vertical reality, with a vertical vision, we can really see what's going on in this text. This is the contrast between the offspring of the serpent, the offspring of the woman, or the contrast between darkness and light. Abigail represents the light, Nabal a fool. He's in darkness. And as the story begins, it begins with the darkness of Nabal, verse 3. It says he's a Calebite, which means... He uh, was part of the esteemed family of Judah. The Calebites were actually, historically, the Calebites were the ones who founded the city Bethlehem where David is from. So he's no doubt, he's a kinsman of David. He's family. He's family. And so that's the context. We read verse 4, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal, his family, was shearing his sheep. So David sent these young men, and the young men came, and they greeted Nabal, and peace to you, and so forth. And then they asked, basically, for, for recompense. You see, it was custom in that day for family members to secure their other family members to protect and provide protection. And it was also common in this day to pay for that protection. And David's protection was very valuable. We learned last week in chapter 23, we heard about the Philistines attacking Keilah and robbing Keilah of all their livestock. And so the fact that David is out there protecting his family members' livestock, he's worth every penny of his security and his protection. It was good to have David on your side, but there's one problem. And that problem is Nabal. Nabal's a fool. Verse 9, when David's young men came, they said this to Nabal, looking for that recompense. In the name of David, they said, and they waited. So they basically asked for this recompense. And then Nabal's response, Nabal answered and said, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Oh, he knew who he was. There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. And what Nabal is doing is here is he's not only disregarding David's service, he's actually disregarding David's person and David's place. He's basically calling David and his men a bunch of masterless, bunch of uh, rejected, outcast slaves, disobedient slaves, bunch of disobedient slaves. What do I have to do with a bunch of disobedient slaves? So he disregards payment for the services. Verse 11, he says, shall I take my bread and my water, my meat I have killed and all that I have done? Now, if you notice, if you count all the first person uh, singulars here, I, my, I think there's like six or seven of them. And we see here, it's all about Nabal. It's all about me. That's the foolishness of the fool, that selfishness. All about me, again, like a TBN minister. Nabal's self-centered. It's the place of fools. And the result of this selfish place was evil. So David's young men turned away and came back and told David all this. And notice David's response. It's instant. He says, strap on your sword. His response is instant because his response is revenge. Strap on your swords. Nobody Nobody speaks to me this way. And so David is now seeking revenge. That's the context. You have this fool, Nabal, and Nabal's now in trouble. Nabal's in trouble, but in the text we see the problem is David's. Nabal's the fool, but the problem is David's. Nabal wronged David. 
And Nabal actually violated Torah. Leviticus 19.13 says, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. He owed David. He was withholding in violation. He wronged Torah. And according to Torah, he must be avenged. Or according to Torah, Torah, there must be vengeance. But according to Torah, that vengeance belongs to whom? That vengeance belongs to Yahweh. But now David, and here's David's problem, David is seeking the vengeance. He's seeking revenge, not to avenge the Lord's glory, but because his own glory and his own honor were robbed. This is revenge. And it appears there's more than one fool in this story. Nabal may be fool, his name may be fool, but there's more than one fool in this story. And we see here by David's life that the darkness can even overcome Christians. And we see here that we all need the light. We all need care. So there are two fools in this story. We saw two of them, and now there are also two wise men. And the first wise man was a servant, verse 14, but one of the young men told Abigail, one of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed against them. He made them fools. And then he goes on to say how they were good to us. They, were, they deserved recompense. They deserved everything they came to get. But your husband, and I love it, he says, such a worthless man. Verse 17, even the servant, everyone knows Nabal. He's a fool, a worthless man. And then 18, verse 18, Abigail's response is likewise instant. Abigail made haste, the text says, quickly. Quickly, she took 200 loaves, two skins of wine. She took all of this recompense. She took all of this money, five seas of parched grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and laid them on a donkey. She grabbed all she could, all she had time for, and she went to seek David, to seek this righteousness, to seek reconciliation, to seek peace. Verse 20, and she rode on a donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain. To David, it says. Now, all of this in this text, it's actually quite scandalous what she's doing. This is very scandalous. Here's a wife taking from her husband. You don't do that in the ancient world. You wives grab the credit cards and checkbooks now, but you're not supposed to. No, I'm just kidding. That's not the principle. (laughs) In the Old Testament, though, right? It was. So she's taking all this without asking her husband which he's already denied, so she's taking it behind his back, but then she, a married woman, under the cover of the mountains, is going to meet this rogue man by herself who happens to be her husband's enemy. This is very scandalous. But Abigail is very wise. Scandalous, but good. She's a wise woman. The text already says she's beautiful. The text already says she's discerning. Now we, she, now we see her as wise and courage, uh, full of courage, courageous. She's beautiful, discerning, wise, courageous, and good. It's all about Abigail in this story. It's all about Abigail. This is the history of Abigail the wise. It's a history of Abigail the wise. But we see from the heavenly vertical dimension, it is the history of light overcoming darkness. And then there's David. 
You got the parenthetical, verse 21 here. Now David had said, surely in vain, I have guarded all this. Oh man, look at David. He's, really, he's throwing a fit here. He's kind of throwing a little hissy. That's how you should read it. Uh, uh, uh. That's how you read it. I have guarded this man in the wilderness. Nothing was missed. Look how good we've done. Oh, we, and all, we're going to return evil for good? God, do so to the enemies of David and more also if by the morning I leave no man alive. Here's a man after God's own heart. The hero of Israel is not looking so good here. He's actually looking more like Saul in this text. He's actually acting just like Saul. Matter of fact, just like Saul, he never mentions Nabal by name. This man, and that's what Saul always said, this man, the son of Jesse, wouldn't even speak his name. In revenge, I want vengeance. Do more be so to, to Saul if, you know, if, if Saul's not avenged, and this is David, if David's not avenged, and the vow he actually makes is, if I'm not avenged, it's all about me. Just like Nabal's speech was all about Nabal, here David's, speech, David's actions, his speech, all about Nabal. Or is it all about David, excuse me. You see, there's two fools in this story. And it's very interesting in light of the previous passage in chapter 24. Yeah, chapter 24. In chapter 24, David forbid vengeance, rightfully so. He forbid his men. He would not, he said, overcome evil with evil. I will not overcome evil with evil. But now, there he remembered that vengeance belongs to the Lord. But now, vengeance belongs to David. What happened? What happened in one short chapter? Nabal's not the only fool. This is a history of fools. It is a history we're familiar with. And seeing this from the upper register, we can see why God sent his only begotten son. We need the light. We need the light of life because we're Nabal. Maybe, maybe we're more like David because we are Christians. We want to associate ourselves with David. Here we are, David, fools. We can be good at times, right? We can act righteous. We can be discerning. We can be good. We'll be biblical. But what about clean hands and a pure heart? Psalm 24, in your life. I, I go more with the hymn, Come Thou Fount of every blessing, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. We come to heaven, we're worshiping God at Zion in this place, receiving his grace, his mercy, shouting the hallelujah chorus with the festival angels and gathering and bringing all glory to God in this glorious place. But as soon as we leave this mountain, back into the valley of the shadow of death, in the parking lot, as we're leaving church, we begin to struggle with those sins, right? We begin immediately to sin and struggle, maybe trying to get on Reserve Street, especially if you're turning left. Our history is the history of fools. It is a history of sin. And if we are to overcome this sad state, we need a super history, a history that can overcome ours, a history to which we can appeal, a greater story, an overcoming story, a story to overcome our story. So it is no longer I who live, but Christ in me in the life that I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that is a wonderful past, a wonderful present, and it gives us a glorious future. Then and there, there is no more condemnation, and I'm on the mountain. 
because I'm in Christ. And David is not the only courageous leader in Scripture. We got to give a shout out to the women, right? Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from her donkey and she fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. Now, Abigail is in a place of submission, but in this text, as you're reading it, she's the one you want to follow. You're like, David who? (laughs) I'm following Abigail. And then she answered, let not my Lord, let not my Lord regard this worthless. (laughs) And this is not a principle for you wives to talk about your husbands either. (laughs) Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. Maybe again, this is quite scandalous as well, right? For his name, so is he. He's a fool. He's a fool. And she basically answers with the wisdom of the Proverbs. Don't answer a fool with his folly, lest you be like him yourself. But what she does here is she assumes the guilt. Now, she says, but I, your servant, I did not see it. I did not see the young men whom you've sent. Now, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives because of the Lord has restrained you. So what she's beginning to do here, she's beginning to bow to David and she's assuming the guilt. She's bearing the sin and she's mediating between David and Nabal. David in the situation, there's something very interesting. Look at verse 26. She says, verse 26, now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from this blood guilt. Now notice who's restrained him from the blood guilt. She's restrained him from the blood guilt, but she is saying, she has that vertical vision, that heavenly vision. She says, the Lord. She claimed at her interception of David, she claimed that her interception of David was actually the Lord's interception of David. Because the Lord has restrained you from this blood guilt. And the Lord has saved you from your own hand. She's saying, as I have restrained you, no, the Lord has restrained you. As I have kept you from this foolishness, God has kept you from this foolishness. As I am now protecting you, God is protecting you. That's the vertical reality. She sees it. God used Abigail to protect David from himself. She kept David from revenge. It was God. And just as God was guided in the cave, God, David, just as David was guided by God in the cave, now Abigail here in the wilderness is guided by the Lord. And the Lord saved David through Abigail. Abigail this day was Savior. And she's also prophet, verse 27. And now let this present that your servant is brought to my Lord be given to the young man and follow the Lord. And then she says, verse 28, please forgive the trespass of your servant for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a house. So here she's prophesying. The Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up against you and so forth, you're gonna be secure. You're gonna get a kingdom and your kingdom will be everlasting. And so she shows David a vision of his destiny. David would be king, he would would have an everlasting kingdom, but before that everlasting kingdom could come, 
Before he could be this great man after God's own heart, he needed Abigail. He needed protection from himself. He needed Abigail. And if you read this speech of Abigail's, it's wonderful, wonderful speech. It's all about the Lord. This speech of Abigail, it's all about the Lord, which is a contrast to Nabal's speech, I, I, me, me, and David's actions, it's all about me. But Nabal, uh, Abigail is a wise woman. It's all about the Lord with Abigail. When the Lord does this to you, when the Lord gives you a kingdom, it was the Lord that protected you, the Lord that provided for you, and the Lord that will give you a kingdom. Verse 30, and when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he spoke according concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, it is the Lord doing. My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pains or conscience or having shed, for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord taking vengeance upon himself when the Lord has dealt well, when the Lord, it's all about the Lord. Abigail's an amazing woman, right? And if you don't, Believe my words, just take David's words. Verse 32, and David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be your discretion. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from the blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord lives, I would have killed them all. Because of Abigail, David was blessed. Abigail was savior. And this is such a beautiful scene. Such a beautiful scene here, Abigail falling before David, taking the guilt, taking the burden, offering herself as a sacrifice, prophesying the Lord's grace and mercy to David, and then David's blessing her, his response to her. It's almost like a beautiful worship service. It's almost like we're in heaven. It's almost like we're in heaven here. But then we're turned away back to Nabal. Verse 36, and Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And again, we're introduced to him again. And as we're introduced to Nabal again, it's, we're introduced to his worldly wealth, right? It's grotesque. He's having a feast like a king. His heart was merry with him. He's very drunk. He's flaunting his wealth, and it, it seems so grotesque as you read it, especially compared to this previous scene, this glorious scene with Abigail and David, and blessed be Abigail, and blessed be the Lord. And now it's like we've been turned away from heaven back to this sad world. And so she told him nothing, it says, because he was drunk. And in the morning, the next morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, then she sprung him, right? Nabal told him of these things. And then the text says his heart died within him, and he became a, he became a stone. I don't know medically what happened there. We could try to guess, but I'm not a doctor. And verse 38 says, and about 10 days later, whatever, whatever, happened, whatever happened to him, he paralyzed us, maybe a coma or something. Whatever it was, 10 days later, he died. But then we are given the vertical reality. The Lord struck Nabal, and he died. You see, on earth, we can see scientifically, yet with a view from heaven, we can see that God is in charge of all things. 
And from this view of heaven, we can also see that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. And with this vertical reality, we can see that it is an appointed man wants to die, and after this, this judgment. It's coming. And we are Nabal. And we need a savior. We need an Abigail. We're David. We need an Abigail. Verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged this insult I received from the hand of Nabal. The Lord has avenged himself. And the Lord has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned evil for evil. Then David sent, or excuse me, then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. So the Lord was declared blessed because of his punishment of Nabal, his protection of David. And in the end, Abigail was blessed for her obedience. He took her as his wife. Now she's going to be queen. She lowered herself. She even lowers herself here. Look at this. When Abigail, when the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to take you to be his wife. And I love her response, right? She didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give her life as a foot washer. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And by this woman's courage, by her wisdom, her goodness, her sacrifice, her humility, in the end, by all of this is glory. She's going to become a queen. Abigail was selfless, bore the sin of her foolish husband, was courageous, good, wise, a savior, saved David. In the end, result was glory. And Abigail is a prelude to Jesus Christ. She's a prelude to the Savior. Matter of fact, she merely lived in the shadow of Christ. The true and perfect man, selfless, good, wise, and courageous to the point of death, who bore the sin of his bride, the church, and saved her. And like Abigail, his sacrifice led to glory. And like Abigail, he did it all quite slanderously, didn't he? He ate with tax collectors and sinners. So he's not ashamed to call you his friend with a grace greater than all your sins. And as the chief prophet, Jesus answers the question, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? And I love Jesus' answer. All that the Father has given me, and I will lose none. He will lose none because he is the great prophet priest who sacrificed his life sacrificed his life for his church who came not to be served but to serve to give his life as a ransom you see friends Christ is the singer of the Psalms he is the man who is blessed and by grace offers that blessing to you the reward of heaven our faith that glory that he received by his obedience he now gives and he gives it quite scandalously. He offers that grace and that glory to fools. <laughs> and he justifies the wicked. 
And in Christ, we who are fools have no more condemnation. Ours is the righteousness of heaven and glory forever. How sinful are you? Look to Christ and have hope. And as you look to Christ and have hope, you'll have pure Christianity. A Christianity all about Jesus Christ. That is that vertical heavenly reality, and it is ours this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us pray. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.